as always, it's a wonderful privilege to be with you today. God just gives us week after week, seemingly, to uh, bless us that we can get together. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We're looking at this section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is talking about marriage, divorce, and singleness. And I've decided to move through this passage slowly. I know, big surprise. We're going to move slowly through this passage, and really because I believe the attacks upon biblical marriage, biblical understanding of divorce, biblical understanding even of singleness, is one of those things that is under attack in our society. And so we need to arm ourselves with the truth of God's Word. More than that, we need to fortify our marriages fortify our status even as singles, whatever the case may be. We need to fortify our calling with biblical truth. And so let's do that today. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 19. We're studying the foundations of Christian marriage. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 12 today. We're just going to get to a couple of those verses, 5 and 6, so pay special attention to those as we read them. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better, it is better not to marry. But he said to him, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of God. In the early part of the 1520s, Reformation was in Europe going full tilt. Martin Luther was the pastor at the church at Wittenberg, and he was the unquestioned leader among the Reformers, among the Protestants. He was writing books, he was teaching young pastors, he was sending missionaries out from his church and other churches, and one of the things that he was surprisingly known for, in addition to all of these things, was that of being a matchmaker. You see, there were a, a few hundred years of Catholic church doctrine that unbiblically forbade monks and priests to marry. So there were monasteries full of monks and convents full of nuns and churches with priests who had made this vow to the church that they would be celibate and never marry. 
What is known as the formal cause of the Reformation is the doctrine of sola scriptura. We studied it at the beginning of this year. Scripture alone has the authority to determine the doctrine and practice of a church. And what you discover and what Luther and the other Protestant reformers discovered because they held to the doctrine of sola scriptura, they discovered that nowhere in the Bible are those in the church forbidden from marrying. And on top of that, not only... We have no forbidding in the Bible. We also find out that many of the early church leaders, in fact, all at least of, uh, at least almost all of the, the apostles were married. In fact, I think the only one we know that was not married would be the apostle Paul himself. In fact, Peter, who was supposed to be the first pope, he himself was married. And so in the Reformation, suddenly you had all these people who were converting, getting saved. They were coming out of the Catholic Church, many of them being monks and nuns and priests, and suddenly discovering that now they are free to marry. So Luther was more than eager to pair these couples up. They would marry, they would settle in, oftentimes as a pastor of a church and his wife. They would have kids, they would live happily ever after. Luther himself, for many, many years, did not want to marry. Why? Because he felt that, like many of his friends, he would be captured and martyred. And he did not want to do that to a wife and children, so he resisted marriage for some time. But as time went on, and many of you know the story, he eventually married a former nun by the name of Catherine or Katie von Bora. What's interesting to note is that Luther did not marry Katie for love, at least in the way that we think of love, in terms of the warm fuzzies and the butterflies in the stomach. That seems to be the only kind of way in which we define love today, maybe thanks to Disney princesses. But Luther did not marry because he had some sort of puppy love or some crush on Katie von Bohr. In fact, he said the reason he was marrying was to spite the devil and to spite the Pope who denied people the the glorious privilege, the gospel privilege of marriage. Marriage, Luther believed, is an illustration of gospel truth, Christ and the church. We read it last week, and we're going to see it again from Ephesians today. The reason God created marriage in the first place was to demonstrate the kind of relationship that is possible through salvation, the relationship between Christ and His bride. The reason God created marriage is to demonstrate this sacrifice, the protection and provision by the groom, Jesus, and His desire to nourish and cherish the bride and to demonstrate the submission of the bride to Christ. And this was the driving reason that Luther got married, not warm and fuzzy, not a crush. He got married to demonstrate the gospel. But for Luther, all about being, it being about Scripture, it being about, the scripture, about Scripture and about the gospel, the amazing thing, as he pursued that end, as he pursued that idea in his marriage, the truth of Scripture, the gospel being proclaimed in his marriage, What's amazing is that he and Katie, as they focus on this, they fell more and more in love. The romance began to flow in like a flood. Luther's goal in marriage was not himself. It was not romance satisfying his urges or his feelings. It was not about those butterflies people feel. But as he pursued the gospel and as Katie pursued a gospel marriage, 
they fell in love. And they fell madly in love. In fact, they became known as some of the most famous lovers of all time. They had six children. We call that overachieving. There was music and joy and laughter they were known for. He loved Katie. You start reading his notes to Katie, he had all sorts of nicknames for her. Katie, my rib, sometimes he would call her. Lord Kate, he would call her from time to time. She was actually a very good businesswoman, uh, and he saw her as a lord of land. Dr. Catherine, she was also good at medicine. She was good at helping people feel better. In his letters, he called her the gracious housewife of Wittenberg. When the house, his house, was messy with all the children, he would call her the mistress of the pigsty. Men, I would suggest, don't use that. Eventually, as they grew older, Katie felt she wasn't spending enough time, they weren't spending enough time talking with one another, and so for his birthday one year, she had some uh, contractors come and build around their front door uh, a couple of seats built into the front door. You can go there today. My wife and I have sat there so they could sit there and they could have conversation every evening. If you ever get to Germany and Wittenberg, you too can sit there and have a conversation with your wife. These, this couple became the epitome of a godly gospel marriage. Of marriage, Luther said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and may the husband make the wife sad to see him go. He said, there's no more loving, charming, and friendly relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. He said, the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his closest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. Speaking of a husband and wife uniting to live out the gospel in their marriage, Luther said, union of flesh does nothing. There must be a union of manners and of mind, or you could say doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, the pinnacle of any marriage is this joint effort to reflect the truth of salvation, to reflect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, romance, attractiveness, sex drive, all these things ebb and flow. For some of you, it's more on the flow side or the ebb side than the flow side. These things come and go. Looks, romance, sexual desire, You and your wife set your mind on something that is eternal, and that is the truth of the gospel. Now, this idea that marriage is all about the gospel is really the second point or the second foundation that I'm bringing out in terms of what Jesus says here about marriage, divorce, and singleness. It's not stated with full explanation in Jesus' words here, but since we're moving through this slowly, I felt like we couldn't fail to mention this, the prime objective of marriage. So last week we saw the first foundation. The first foundation of Christian marriage is this. Marriage is a treasure woven into creation. We saw that in the first few words that Jesus says in response to these Pharisees that wanted to test him. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is this wonderful blessing of marriage, this One man, one woman, unified together, one unit, is a beautiful part of God's glorious creation. It goes back to the very beginning. 
The two shall become one, verse 6. They are no longer two, but one. And we can understand this is not talking about a physical reality, but a spiritual reality. It's talking of, of a union of mind and heart, just as Luther spoke of earlier. A sweet communion between husband and wife, a, a unity that's greater than what the animals can experience, a unity that's greater than what we see in any other living creation. There is a sweet, beautiful communion between husband and wife. So unified, they are said to be one flesh. And of course, for Adam and Eve, it was literally true, Adam or Eve being created from Adam's side, that this is a figurative example of, of all marriages. We become one. This sweet unity is so strong, so real, it can be said that we are one. And so a marriage ceremony is to make formal and public that joining, that union, that togetherness of marriage. Well, in God's progressive revelation, as we have in the Scripture, as God's time goes on, God began to reveal Himself more and more. And as God revealed Himself more and more, we find out a little more in depth what Jesus was speaking of. The two becoming one, stated there in verse 5 and then in verse 6, this is a representation of what we will experience in salvation, Right? us becoming unified with Jesus Christ. Paul says of husband and wife, of marriage, it's a mystery to him. And, of course, it would be for him as a single guy. It's a mystery, but also ultimately it's a reference, a parable of Christ and his bride, Ephesians 5, 32. Maybe you even want to flip over to Ephesians and keep your finger back there in Matthew. We'll be flipping back and forth from Ephesians 5 and Matthew 18 today. Marriage is a parable of Christ's union with his people. So that's point number two, and that's what we're going to look at today. Marriage is a parable picturing our salvation. Marriage is a parable picturing our salvation. Now, how do we see this in marriage? I can think of three ways, and we can draw this, especially from the passage in Ephesians. Number one, we can see a storyline in marriage of sacrifice, right? There's, there's the idea of sacrifice. This week I came across a saying. I think several authors have said it in different ways. I don't know who said it in the most pithy way, but it's something like this. From the first Adam's sleep came his bride Eve, and from the second Adam's death came his bride the church. Adam slept, Adam sacrificed, you could say, his side. Adam sacrificed for the creation of Eve. Jesus died. He gave his life for the creation of the church and this fellowship that he would have with the church. So there's, there, there's this idea that from the very start, the, the love that a man would have for a wife, and it's parallel to Christ and the church, is that we are all in, particularly the groom for the bride. He's all in. He would sacrifice everything for her. And that's what we find Paul saying in Ephesians 5. Paul makes this point about sacrifice. He says, husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the parallel sacrifice. Men, it's a giving up of rights. It's a giving up of ownership. It's Caring for her more than you care for yourself, it's making the kind of sacrifices necessary to love your wife. 
We deny ourselves things. And, of course, ladies, there's a level of sacrifice as well. You know more than anybody the kind of sacrifice it takes to love your husband. And men, we sacrifice. We sacrifice for each other. This should be a theme. This, this idea of sacrificial love should be a theme, and indeed it should be, because this is exactly what Paul says, the reason marriage exists, so that we can demonstrate the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross. The sacrifice is aimed at love. The sacrifice is aimed at closeness. Sacrifices that are aimed at intimacy. Ultimately, these things are a replication of Jesus' sacrifice to bring his bride close. There's a lot of guys out there, and you work very hard, and you do lots of things to make more money and buy more stuff, and and maybe you sort of think of yourself and pat yourself on the back saying, you know, I really sacrificed for this family, but the sacrifice that Jesus has is to bring her close, his bride close. So the sacrifice we're talking about here is not just working more and making more money. The sacrifice is a sacrifice to bring closeness and intimacy and more love in your marriage. In fact, I would argue that if you are quote-unquote sacrificing to get more money into your family life at the expense of your marriage, and that's not the kind of sacrifice we're talking about. That's not helping your marriage. That's not a demonstration of the gospel. The kind of sacrifice you want is a sacrifice that would bring more love and more intimacy into your family. Men, notice uh, Ephesians 5.25, and this is one of those verses that speak of the limited nature of the atonement. He gave himself up for her. Who's the her? Paul articulates the church. Sacrifice was not just generic. It wasn't just, well, Jesus died for a good cause. He created some sort of potentiality. There's a theory that a lot of liberals hold about uh, Jesus' death on the cross. It's called the example theory. And it basically says Jesus didn't really accomplish anything on the cross. He didn't pay for anybody's sin. He didn't propitiate God's wrath against anyone. He just demonstrated uh, what it is to die for something you really believe in. Hogwash. Jesus laid down his life as an atonement for sin. Jesus appeased God's wrath. Whose sin? The sin of his bride. God's wrath against whom? His wrath against his bride without Christ's intervention. The angel told Joseph about what Jesus would do. He has come to save his people from their sin. It says in Isaiah 53, 11, that Jesus would, by his death, justify the many. It says in Mark chapter 10, Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. Well, who are the many? It is the bride of Christ. There was a specific aim at bringing the bride close to Jesus. And that was the purpose of that sacrifice. In marriage, husbands, beginning with you, there is this theme of sacrifice. You make a sacrifice. You sacrifice for your bride. You give things up. You give time up and energy up. You give money up. You sacrifice to bring your bride close to you. God, in his plan for the ages, designed marriage to present a storyline, the storyline of sacrifice, sacrifice for the sake of love, sacrifice for the sake of the bride. Are you living that way in your marriage, men? Are you making those kind of sacrifices? Well, this brings up a second theme in this parable, another theme as you think about the, this parable of marriage as 
a picture of Christ and the bride. Another thing it brings up is the union of two into a covenant relationship. It's this union, this official, formal union of two people into covenant. Now, you'll notice back in Genesis, there is no official marriage ceremony, and this has caused a few people, usually men, to say, hey, we don't need to have a marriage. Let's just sort of live together and do sort of the common law thing. Let's just sort of live that way and love each other that way. Uh, Ladies, let me tell you something. First of all, don't ever be with a guy who's unwilling to profess his love for you publicly and formally. Make a vow. Drop him like a bad habit. If you're a single lady and you're dating a guy who's unwilling to commit, it's not the kind of guy you want to live with forever. Why? Because that guy is not willing to demonstrate this very covenant relationship in marriage. He's stepping away from that kind of commitment. More importantly, though, Jesus is saying something, looking at the Old Testament story back in our verses of Matthew, Jesus presents us with this, this formal act. He doesn't define a ceremony, what happens in a ceremony, but it describes this formal act. It's an act of departure from parents and family and union cleaving to one another. Back in Matthew 19, verse 5, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what happens, right, down at the altar. Who gives this bride in holy matrimony? I and her mother do, right? That's what the dad says. And he hands off the bride, the leaving. And what does she do? She cleaves, she clings on to this man. This is a picture of salvation, isn't it? This is a picture of your own salvation. You came to a point of decision where you left your old way of life. You left your old authority. You left your old family even. And you joined with Christ. There's this beautiful union with Christ. This is why when you look at Israel's history, reading Genesis and the rest of the, New, the Old Testament, what you find out is in Israel's history, they made a big deal about weddings. Weddings were huge and still are. Big deal. This change of allegiance, this change of uh, someone being or a couple being committed to their parents and under the authority of that structure and then parting from their family, parting from their par- parents, and joining together in covenantal union. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our union with Christ, doesn't it? There's a lot we can learn about this union we have with Jesus Christ. For one thing, the New Testament talks all the time about the fact that we Christians are, quote, in Christ. Now, that sounds a little bit strange to our modern ears, because over the last 50 years or so, uh, we, at least American Christians, have grown accustomed to hearing about us having Christ in us, right? Christ in our hearts. Maybe you've even heard that phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. I just want to make a little asterisk here. That phrase, asking Jesus into your heart, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Now, I don't come down real hard on that, because I do think there are passages in the Bible that talk about being Christ in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Christ dominating, controlling our hearts through the Spirit. I don't really come down hard on that. But what's more, more prevalent in the New Testament is not about Christ being in us, but about us being in Christ. This is the most common way our unity with Christ is talked about. We are in Christ, meaning as believers, we have been covered with Christ's righteousness. 
We have been covered by his atoning sacrifice. Our sin has been taken away. In Christ, Paul said, we died and rose. Obviously, not physically, but spiritually, we parted ways with our old man, and we rose as a new person, now identified with Jesus Christ. Our sin was wiped away. We have eternal life in Christ, and our union with Christ comes from his work in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We have this union, and you see this parallel. We talked about it, or we read some verses about that from Colossians moments ago. We join Christ in his death. We join Christ in his resurrection. We join Christ in his ascension. Ultimately, we join Christ in terms of glorification with God forever. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Colossians 3, Colossians 3 uh, 1, chapter 1, verses 3, 13 through 14 says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, that's our old allegiance, <clears throat> and he has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have this union in Christ the Bible speaks of this unity over and over again. Jesus said in John 15, He is the vine, we are the branches. And if we abide in Him, and He in us, we will bear much fruit. We have union with Him. It said that we, we are the body, and He is the head. Colossians 1.18 and elsewhere. He is the cornerstone, the Bible says. He is the foundation, the plumb line. 1 Peter 2, 4-7. We are all living stones that are built on this one cornerstone. We are crucified with Christ, as I mentioned, baptized into Him, Romans 6, 3. Our union with Christ begins with His election, Ephesians 1, 4, being justified by His work, Philippians 3, 8, and 9, unified with Him in a new life marked with new dedication to the covenant God has written upon our hearts, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the indwelling of the Spirit, Romans 14, 8, we grow in Christ, and then one day we get to our eternal state and with our resurrected bodies enjoy God forever just as Christ is, Colossians 3, really the whole chapter. All that to say is that this covenantal intimacy between us and Christ, this unity between us and Christ is pictured in marriage, starting with that marriage ceremony where Two people leave and cleave. That's kind of the language we use, leave and cleave. They make that covenant. They make those vows publicly and officially. They leave their old family and, just like a Christian, would leave their old self, their self-dependence, their former authorities, and that new relationship is formalized and made secure in their union with Christ. So marriage is a parable. It's a picture of sacrifice But it's also a picture of covenantal union, and we see this covenantal union all over the Bible. Well, there's another way that marriage is a parable of the gospel of salvation, and I'd like to mention today. Third, how is marriage a parable of salvation? What aspect of marriage is parallel to salvation? The love and submission of bride and groom. You could say the interaction between bride and groom, the relationship between bride and groom. Jesus says there in Matthew, there are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. There's this union, and there's this effort to maintain that unity, to strengthen that union. 
That effort is made first and foremost by the groom back in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Here, I actually went through and I counted all the English words. That's that section on marriage, wives and husbands, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. I counted 215 words, 215. 153 of them are aimed at men, husbands, and 62 for wives, so more than two-thirds. And even when you read the instruction to wives, what you realize is there's some instruction in there about men as well. And I'll touch on this more in a moment, but men, you're going to make it very hard for your wives to do what they are called to do if you're not doing what you are called to do. And what are we called to do, men? As husbands sort of expounding on what Jesus said. Paul gives us this instruction about marriage. What are we called to do? Well, the summary of what we are called to do is in the very last verse of Ephesians 5, verse 33, let each one of you love his wife. And we are called to love. We are called to love our wives. Now, what does this look like? I summarize the love we're to have for our wives in two ways, two words. Maybe you want to write down men or wives. You can write it down and give it to your husband if they're not listening. Number one, it is to lead. You see there at the beginning of Paul's instruction, and this is the part where it's two wives, but it teaches men about their leadership. Verse 25, husband Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, man, what's the objective? What's the purpose of your leadership in the family? The same reason as Christ leads, to sanctify, to make them more like Jesus. You're not there to, to dominate. You lead for spiritual growth. You're there to provide a, a trajectory and, and help along the way for your wife as she grows in Christ. Well, isn't this where most guys fail? A lot of guys are happy to lead in terms of the finances or where the family lives or how they do this or how they do that. But when it comes to the spiritual life of the family, many guys just take a back seat. That is the exact opposite, men, of what we are to do. We are to lead spiritually. A lot lot of guys think the leadership we're supposed to have is, is all about dominating their wife. And so men either dominate their wives or they think, well, I can't dominate my wife. And so they become a doormat. Sort of tends to be the, the prototypical male. Either he's a doormat or he dominates. But men, if you fail in this area, you're failing as a husband. You're failing to provide. You're failing to protect. You're failing ultimately to love and do exactly what Christ does for the church in terms of leadership. This doesn't mean you are smarter than your wife in terms of doctrine. I know a lot of you guys, you're just a bunch of dummies. I know there's a lot of wives out there that are a lot smarter than us, but that doesn't mean we should not lead in terms of our love for Christ, our desire to follow Him, our desire to know Him and love the Word. 
We are to lead in this way. When you lose, oh, excuse me, you lose your ability to lead men when you fail morally. I've seen this a million times. Yes, it happens in terms of sexual things, but it happens in other ways as well. Men fail in their leadership because they fail morally. They lose what's called moral authority. You know that phrase, moral authority? Someone has moral authority when they themselves demonstrate that morality. They do not have moral authority when they come wanting people to do something and act a certain way, and they clearly have not done that themselves. It's like me explaining to some of you how to diet. I'm a failure. I last about a month. I do not have any moral authority when it comes to dieting. Some of you are moral authorities. Men, in terms of our morality, we ought to have moral authority. In our family, we should be the one that's pursuant of, of Christ the most. Our attitudes, our spirit, our, our actions, our words ought to be clearly in pursuit of Jesus Christ above everyone else in our family. Not in terms of competition, but in terms of gracious leadership. But you lose your ability to lead when you fail morally. You also lose your ability to lead when you fail in your love for the Word, that is, the love for the truth of God, to know doctrine, to know theology. Again, even if your wife is smarter or understands more or has more time to read or whatever, men, in terms of a passion for the truth, in terms of passion for the Word, you ought to be the one in the driver's seat. You ought to be the one that leads. Of all the people in the family, you should be the one who loves the Word the most. And you're a failure. You're a failure if your wife is having to do that. You're failing to lead. You also lose your ability to lead when you fail to show love for God and, by extension, love for His people, the church, and most particularly his, uh, your wife. You need to be the person who, of all people, loves the most, who ought to be the person who is most loving. It doesn't mean the most merciful or soft or, or emotional or whatever, but when you show genuine love for God and for His people. So, men, this brings me to a second way in which we love our wives, and that is to cherish. Maybe we want to write that word down. Verse 28, again in Ephesians 5, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, Paul is not saying, hey, guys, I know you're really into working out, you really like your bodies, and you look at yourself in the mirror and flex and... And uh, I know how much you guys really are into that stuff. He, he's not talking about that kind. That's sort of a 20, 20, 20th and 21st century phenomenon. I don't think Paul is talking about self-love, loving your physique or yourself. I think he's talking simply how we naturally, as humans, feed, protect, and care for our bodies. Verse 29, he nourishes and cherishes his wife. Or you could say he provides and protects. Now listen very carefully. Proverbs 31. Ladies, you know this. This is Proverbs 31. Woman, it's pretty clear here. A good woman, she works. She works hard. She contributes, even makes money. She buys and sells at the market. 
We talked about Martin and Katie Luther. Uh, Katie actually made more money than Martin ever did because she turned out to be a really good uh, businesswoman in terms of farming and of land. She would buy and sell land, and she uh, turned their house and built onto their house and built it in sort of an Airbnb and would have many students that were staying there. So I have no problem at all with a woman who works, especially in a place like Hawaii. It's almost absolutely necessary. The truth is, if you look through human history, that is true almost exclusively, that both man and woman had to work, and they had to work hard just to survive. However, this passage tells us one of the primary ways a man loves his wife, and by extension his family, is that he provides food. He nourishes. Paul would later say that a man who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Men, you are to provide for your family. And I know in in an expensive place like Hawaii, I know that there are situations you get in and there are things that are tough and you both have to lend a hand. But men, you ought to be working hard to provide for your family. Today, I've discovered it's it's more more and more popular. There's sort of three ideas that are more and more popular, and I've realized this. Uh, It seems like as as, as our sort of American history moves forward, there are these three ideas that begin to prevail more and more. One thing that I'm seeing more and more of is guys staying at home to let their wives pursue a career and bring home the bacon. Don't do it. You're not picturing the church and Christ. You've got things in reverse order. It's not, not that men shouldn't do their job and help with the family and clean and take care of kids, but men, you ought to give your time and energy to providing for the family. Don't put that burden on your wife. And let me tell you something. I've seen this a million times. Guys do this and say, oh, she's okay with it. She's fine. She wants to pursue this and do that. And sure enough, she is. Usually, initially, she's okay with it. But as time goes on, she grows to spite that lazy rear end that sits on the couch all day and does nothing. Men, you provide for your family. Work hard at it. Another trend that I'm starting to, see is, starting to see is for guys to never really leave parents or in-laws. Yeah, they have the ceremony, but they're still drawing an income from parents or in-laws. I had a friend like this, and again, initially the marriage was fine, and wife was perfectly fine with that. But as time went on, her respect of her husband began to diminish more and more and more, and she began, began to feel like, well, I don't think this guy knows what he's doing. He certainly can't provide for us because he needs my parents or his parents to provide for us. Third trend, especially with what's happening with COVID, is for men to depend on the country or other free money. Now, listen, I know we have systems in place, and people get themselves and tough situations, and sometimes it's not even your fault, and you have to go on welfare, and I'm perfectly fine with that. That, that has to happen, and sometimes a, a society needs to lend a hand to people who lose jobs, especially when something very devastating happens, but that is temporary, right? You do everything in your power to work once again. I, I've known a number of guys who take money from the state They start to do some side jobs and make money on the side jobs, and they lie to the IRS and act like they still don't have a job so that they can just have more money in their pocket. Let me tell you something. Your wife will grow to disrespect you because you are not putting food on the table. And you're certainly, worse than that, not picturing 
how Christ provides for the church. So we cherish our wives in one way by providing and protecting. We nourish, we feed, we do what we can spiritually, but also physically. We care for the family in that way. But that's not the only way in which we cherish our wives. In verse 33 is that summary word, and it is indeed the word agapao or agape. We show a tender, selfless kindness to our wives. We show a passion, even physical desire for our wives. We show mercy and grace on our wives. She is our jewel. She is our most prized relationship. We give up all to love her and to care for her. We are committed to her and her only. We cherish her. I mean, that's our job. Our job is to lead. Our job is to cherish, and this all comes under this idea of loving our wives. This is the kind of love that Christ has for his bride. He leads, he cherishes, he loves, he provides, he protects. This is how we demonstrate in our marriages the contours of salvation. And when we do this, it's a whole lot easier for our wives to live up to their responsibility. What is their responsibility? Well, it's that famous, or depending on who you are, infamous verse, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and himself is its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. So, in this love relationship, how do we picture this union, this togetherness? Men do it by loving their wives and leading them and cherishing them. Women do it by respecting their husbands in which they follow and submit to him. Now in verse 33 is that word respect. That's sort of the summary idea. Ladies, if you're to picture salvation or marriage, you respect your husband. You do this by following him. You follow his prayerful and careful guidance. You lean into his leadership. You ask him to help you grow and guide the family. You demonstrate the beautiful relationship that you have with the Savior. You lean in for leadership. A sign of fallenness and sin, not the gospel and salvation, but a sign of fallenness and sin is a wife who hates to submit. It's a lady who is self-willed A lady who perhaps manipulates like Eve in that first sin, who refuses or simply just neglects her husband's gentle guidance. God says in Genesis 3.16 that one of the results of the fall was that ladies will want to repeat this role reversal and dominate their husbands, but in fact they'll get the short of the stick. Men will dominate women, and we see that throughout history. Men abusing women over and over and over again. What I've noticed is that ladies who seek to dominate and rule their husbands, they have a a completely convoluted view of male leadership. They think that male leadership is just like their leadership, dominating, domineering, manipulation, coercion. And their whole view of what Moses, then Jesus, then Paul has said about marriage is totally out of whack, and their view of salvation or their depiction of salvation in their marriage is upside down. 
The right kind of male leadership seeks to be like Christ, who is the good shepherd. Now, ladies, I understand. Your husband's not perfect. He makes a lot of mistakes. There's some of you who are married to a guy who's not even saved. He could care less about picturing salvation. And there's a lot of questions to be answered, especially when it comes to a husband that might want you to engage in sin or neglect in such a way that would violate God's principles, and we can talk about those things. But in the end, it even tells us, tells ladies like that, if he's willing to continue with you, you stay with him, you submit, if perchance, by demonstrating the gospel to him in that marriage, this is 1 Corinthians 7, he would be saved. All right, let's wrap this up before I get in too much trouble. Let me close with a humiliating admission. It took me at least 15 years of of ministry before I really saw the inexorable connection between bad marriages and bad kids. Now, I I knew the stats. We all know the stats. Bad marriages cause bad kids, and we we, we know all these stats. But I, I think it was 10 or 11 years ago, we were here. We had a house up on Palahia, and we had a family group up there. And, boy, we had some rowdy children, and that's the nicest word I could use. What I was thinking was demon-possessed, but rowdy, I'll use that word. (laughs) We had some rowdy kids in our family group, and I thought, you know, what these parents need is like a a lesson on how to parent wisely, biblically. They're struggling in the area of parenthood. And so I, I offered the suggestion. I said, instead of, you know, we typically go through the sermon. That's what family groups do. If you're new with us, that's what our family groups do during the week. They meet and they go through the, the truths of the sermon and try to help each other apply these things. Instead of doing that, I, I suggested, why don't we do a, a parenting course? And I thought, well, you know, I may need to give them an option. We could do a parenting course or maybe, I don't know, if you guys want to do a marriage course, a marriage course, we could do that as well. But I was thinking a parenting course. A hundred percent of them said, please, let us do a marriage course. And it dawned on me, what's happening in those marriages? What's happening in those marriages is not a depiction of salvation and submission and leadership and sanctification and the beauty of of the gospel. What's being pictured in those marriages is rebellion and hatred and malice and rowdiness. That's what's being depicted. And those kids are just living out what they're watching in their mom and dad. I realize these kids are downloading what they saw about downloading into their attitudes what they saw in what their parents were doing, how their parents were acting. God has wired us humans to see marriage, to look to marriage as a picture of Christ and the bride and how we relate ultimately to God. Those children are getting something corrupted, upside down. They were getting daily lessons on rebellion and hatred and malice. They had no concept of the wonderful union that a husband and wife can can have and the union that is spoken of about our relationship with Christ. Now, this spreads beyond just our children, doesn't it? You ever considered that included in, in that idea, they will know us, speaking of outsiders, they will know us by our love for one another. Have you ever thought about that includes the love that husbands have for their wives? It should be true that believers, particularly believing husbands, treat their wives better than any other husband on the planet. It should be true that wives depict the church in this humble submission to their husbands better than any women on the planet, and they show how this beautiful unity happens. And it's sad to say, so often is not the case. 
And it begins with us realizing that way back at the beginning, when God set up human relationships, Paul revealed to us through the inspiration of the Spirit that God had an objective in mind. And that objective was to demonstrate the relationship of Christ and His bride, the church. It would be pictured in the love that Christ has for His bride, the protection and cherishing. It would be pictured in the submission, the respect that the bride offers to her husband. The picture of the covenantal, unbreakable relationship of God and His people. Well, next week we're going to get really practical because my third point will be marriage, unity, and harmony should be pursued at all costs. But we don't have time to do that today, so don't divorce this week. Wait till next week. We're going to talk about some very practical things about how to live these truths out. All right, let's pray that we can demonstrate the gospel in our marriages. Father, we thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for the truth of Christ, the truth of salvation. And we do pray, dear Lord, that our marriages, uh, particularly the marriages in this church, will reflect those wonderful truths, the truths that you have given us. Lord, we know that we, speaking for men, we fail so often and we shoot ourselves in the foot in terms of godly leadership. And so, Lord, we confess that sin to you. We ask that you'd forgive us of these things. You'd give us these desires, these holy desires to pursue hot after you, to study your word, to know the truth, to lead our family biblically, to lead our wives. Help us do this, Lord. And Father, I pray for the wives in this room, Lord, that they would learn from these verses of how to submit and to follow and to go along with the gentle guidance of her husband. Lord, may we picture the love, the union between Christ and the bride, his church. I pray, Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, call them to yourself, call them to that relationship, convict them of the truth of Christ, him crucified, the sacrifice that he made so that they would be alive forevermore. Grant them the faith and repentance they need to follow after Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.